Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother Macaroo. I'm Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. Today's date is August 23rd, 2019. This we have been told. I want to take this time to reintroduce many to Comrade George Jackson, anointed field marshal of the Black Panther Party. Imprisoned for an indeterminate sentence, he was alleged to have stolen $35 from a gas station. This brother wrote two blockbuster books as far as I'm concerned. One, Blood in My Eye, the other, Letters from a Soul Dad Prison. Blood in My Eye offers a descriptive uh, methodology, for lack of a better term, as to how to create disorder. Uh, the heroin Angela Davis became enamored, enamored with his brother as a result of his writings. He wrote these seminal books in the midst of Bedlam, particularly the Bedlam that he was engulfed by in San Quentin prison or while in greater confinement. Ultimately, he was assassinated by the prison guards. Uh, during this assassination, he was accompanied by a gentleman that I got a chance to chat with at length many years ago, uh, Johnny Spain. Of course, this brother was feared because of his intellectual prowess, a brother that Huey Newton looked up to. Of course, uh, we can also interject the fact that, you know, black activism has always been disdained black political thinkers who did not follow the political line, the dominant ideology, the prevailing notions that guide many of our mainstream leaders. And, uh, you know, I think it's necessary to actually talk about the aims and the objectives of the COINTELPRO program, which still exists today in another name. Of course, uh, Hoover, Mary by Night, as the brother refers to, Gay Edgar Hoover as, you know, offered three points in disrupting the black liberation movement. Number one was to stop the rise of a black messiah who could unify, electrify the masses. Point number two was to discredit black liberation thinkers, black liberators, black uh, warriors, uh, discredit them in the eyes of the respectable Negro community as the document read, as well as in the eyes of white liberals. And then the third point was to convince the black youth that if they succumb to revolutionary or nationalist ideologies, that they will be killed. Now, uh, Brother Macaroo uh, gave us a report on African liberation media. Uh, you can check it out on Facebook, where he clearly uh, indicated documentation to the effect that white supremacist organization 
have always been aided and abetted by government. In fact, you cannot discern the difference between Proud Boys, uh, Oath Keepers, the Klan, and the FBI. They're all the same. You know, the question arises, well then, why is nonviolent protests of black revolu uh, revolutionary liberation organizations attacked to such a degree to where they assassinate our leaders, um, destroy by way of air assault black organizations vis-a-vis -vis these white organizations that uh, are never really pursued, haunted, and destroyed by government. Well, then the answer is clear. You know, my question was really rhetorical. It's because they are the shock troops of the American ruling elite. And uh, having said that, you know, I'll turn it over to Brother Macaru and Brother Amos. Habarigani, Bado, Mampampano, the struggle continues, uh, African family. We are indeed uh, celebrating the night, Black August. Black August is something that emerged um, during, I would say, the height of our consciousness in the second half of the 20th century during the 1970s and Field Marshal George Jackson, who was assassinated in August of, uh, I think, 1971, after his uh, brother, Jonathan, had been uh, killed in uh, August of 1970, attempting to free him and the uh, other Soledad brothers. Um, the, uh, the series of events that that happened to take place in August is why it was given the name Black August. And of course, it all starts with the event of August 20th, 1619, when a group of African people whom John Rolfe, the uh, husband of Pocahontas, described as the 20 and odd, uh, 400 years ago, a group of Africans were captured in what's today known as Angola, placed aboard a Portuguese slave ship, hijacked by British pirates, and sold to British uh, settler colonists or British invaders, whatever you want to call these people who came from Europe, who had uh, began to steal land from indigenous people in uh, what we call today Virginia. And um, these Africans arrived um, Rolf said about the latter end of August, a Dutch man of war uh, arrived at a place called Point Comfort. I'm sure there was no nothing comforting to the Africans that are, that arrived there on that day. And uh, he said that uh, the ship bought not anything but 20 and odd Negroes. Uh, Rolf wrote this in September of 1619. Rolf didn't give the specific date, but a number of historians have identified the date as August 20th. So uh, this past August 20th was the uh, 400th uh, mark. We've marked 400 years of Africans who came, who were forced into this country as a result of uh, the transatlantic uh, enslavement process. Uh, so we put up a post about it. And... Um, we said uh, that there are several things that are important in terms of clearing up the history, 
uh, all throughout our school years, we, you know, we were told that they arrived at Jamestown. They did not arrive at Jamestown. It was called a Dutch ship. It was actually British pirates flying a Dutch flag, very cleverly flying a Dutch flag. And what was not known to us is, you know, why these Africans, you know, were brought to Virginia at that particular at that particular point. Um, and so what I wrote was the, uh, those Africans were slaves in every sense of the word, having been captured in Angola. There were approximately 350 people crammed into a Portuguese slave ship called the San Juan Bautista. They were being transported for sale to plantation owners in Mexico. Based on the merchant records, about 150 of them perished during the dreaded Middle Passage. British pirates attacked the Bautista and stole 50 of those Angolans whom they transported to Virginia aboard two ships, the White Lion carrying the first 20 and the Treasurer, which arrived a few days later after August 20th. The Angolans were sold for food and supplies to the governor and Cape Merchant, who resold them to Virginia settlers in, in Jamestown. Some of them became indentured servants, but the terms of their servitude was rarely documented. Unlike English indentured servants who voluntarily came to British North America due to massive unemployment, intense poverty, and violence in England or to finish serving time for criminal convictions, the Angolans who were transported to Virginia in 1619 were sold into slavery. They did not sign contracts in Africa to work for up to seven years to gain freedom, which they already had. These Africans were forcibly migrated to British North America, British colonial North America. You know, we, and we, this was the beginning of what we call the world's for. In, for, in this part of the world, obviously it had started earlier on the island of Haiti, but it was um, part of what we call the, the world's largest forced migration. The National Park Service says of surviving wills, inventories, deeds, and other documents, in some instances it was considered customary practice to hold some Negroes in a form of life service. So to me, this destroys the argument that a lot of people want to make uh, most recently, uh, the esteemed scholar, Dr. Neil uh, Irwin uh, Painter, Painter, she said, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that we shouldn't call these people enslaved Africans. But the question is this. His, his, if they were held in a form of life service, what is a form of life service other than slavery? So this was uh, so some of our people were actually you know, held in slavery from the very, very beginning of their arrival. And, of course, uh, that ignited the, the long struggle against chattel slavery. So, you know, that was the, uh, the founding event uh, of what we called uh, Black August. Obviously, Africans had been transported to uh, other areas of uh, uh, North America, Central America, South America, the Caribbean before 1619. We know that the Portuguese the, the, and the Spaniards in particular and, and also the Dutch were, were doing these uh, uh, raids on the continent of Africa and with the cooperation in some instances of uh, some race traders uh, who were working with these Europeans to capture our people. Um, but 1619 for us, for those of us who are uh, descendants of people who were part of the transatlantic enslavement process, you know, is the beginning of 
this uh, 400 year experience in this land that's now called the United States? Well, suffice it to say, we're talking about white supremacy. Uh, it has simply been redesigned. We've heard it over and over again that, uh, you know, the auction block has been replaced by the sale block. Here in 2019, uh, as Dr. King so well articulated, blacks are still being killed as if it is a national pastime. You know, we find ourselves in 2019 in a dangerous situation because you know, there's no use for us when there is no use for us. And the European economies have pretty much uh, reached a point where they no longer need us to maintain its employment structure. You know, so, you know, suffice it to say, here we are struggling to survive, you know, given the fact that deindustrialization neoliberal policies as well as globalization has been exposed as a sham, you know, and the thing that, you know, I'm so struck by and dismayed by is the fact that in, in spite of the fact that we have to contend with white supremacy, in the uh, proliferation of black-on-black -black violence, or as Brother Macaroo calls it, the tyranny of bullets, also ravage our community. So, you know, we dealing with a, a double whammy, you know, and we have to, you know, literally take a, a double barrel shotgun approach, you know, all emanating from the same source, the internalization of white supremacy, the objectification of Africans on the part of the progenitor, the European, and of course, Africans themselves uh, acting like the European in proxy. So this is what we are confronted with. Uh, the problem persists. We know the problem, which is easy to identify. The solution perhaps is not so identified. Uh, but historically, from a historical standpoint, uh, Malcolm X talked about this. Uh, there was a de-escalation, a reduction in uh, black self-murder during the time when uh, we had movements in the 60s. So, you know, what's the possibility, I would ask myself, of a movement occurring uh, given the speed of co-optation uh, of these movements as exemplified in what happened with the National Football League? Uh, invariably, these movements will be, you know, co-opted uh, through financial resources, selfishness, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard me say on this program before that white supremacy is a team sport. Um, I don't want to minimize how devastating, how ugly, um, how debilitating it is, but they function as a team. We tend not to function as a team. When we do, we function as a team with an uneven spirit and as individuals who are attempting to extricate ourselves for selfish purposes. Stokely Carmichael uh, intoned one during one of his talks that uh, the Judas factor is 
alive and well, but at least Judas had the decency to kill himself. And many of these Negro preachers are still collecting 30 pieces of silver. But uh, this is what we're confronted with. Um, uh, it's just a hell of a situation, hell being a condition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just, just some comments. Well, it's, it's definitely a lot of events. I don't know if you call it a coincidence, but so many events that have taken place in the month of August over the last 400 years for African people, monumental historical events that we look back to now and we reflect upon and we build upon in the continuing struggle for African liberation. And one of the most monumental events that took place in the month of August, just two days ago, on August 21st, was the Haitian, the beginning of the Haitian Revolution. And this was one of the earliest examples of not just resistance, but in victory against the white oppressors from Europe, be that the, the British, the Spanish, and the French who all were defeated by our ancestors on the island of Haiti. And it all started uh, with the famous ceremony that took place um, where there was an oath that was taken to the great Orisha Ogun. And it was an oath that was given, prayer that was said by Bookman Duty, that in order for the Africans to succeed, that they would have to throw away the images of the white European God because that their God was not just, but that the God of the Africans would lead them into victory. So this was monumental because this is what was the catalyst for the abolishing of the transatlantic slave trade amongst countries legally traveling to the African continent and bringing back um, enslaved Africans. Now, I say legally. Of course, we know that it was illegal. But according to European law, many countries banned this slave trade because of what happened in Haiti. And they feared that this same defeat that they took could happen in their own home countries. So this, this instilled a lot of fear and white Europeans. And this is one of the only, or the only successful revolution of an enslaved people anywhere in the world. Physically enslaved people to not only defeat their oppressors, but then start a nation uh, from from that victory over over those oppressors. So uh, we're going to get into a lot more that happened in August, but that primarily is one of the early um, secondary things that happened after what Baba Makaru just talked about, what happened in 1619 uh, with our ancestors being drugged here from Angola. I can remember, uh, well, reading William Jennings Bryan making the statement, imagine this, a group of N-words speaking French. Hmm. You know, it scarred the European psyche for 
many years, as did the rebellion uh, on the part of Nat Turner. The thing I've, I've always found interesting was the fact that, you know, the Haitians defeated the French, but yet in spite of this, uh, the Haitians ended up having to pay a huge indemnity uh, to the Europeans, uh, you know, somewhat unprecedented that this kind of thing would happen, uh, thus crippling uh, IAT in terms of its um, developmental process that would have taken place unprecedented. Oh, you know, absolutely. I mean, considering, considering, you know, what, you know, what had to, had to take place in order, you know, for these uh, Africans to uh, defeat, you know, what was considered to be, um, you know, one of the uh, most powerful armies in the world at that time, the army of... Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, and, you know, they defeated the French in particular on uh, several occasions, and, you know, on one occasion when they really thought they had secured uh, liberation and independence, uh, they uh, tricked Toussaint Louverture into uh, a, a accepting a treaty and, and subsequently kidnapped him and took him to France where he died in prison. Um, and, you know, that was just another example, you know, from throughout our history is, <laughs> is that there, 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 is, there is no liberation until you have totally, totally neutralized the capacity of our enemies to impose themselves, impose their will, you know, on us. But what we have to recognize also is that, uh, you know, one of the things I was looking at in this book by the Irritated Genie, an essay on the Haitian Revolution, by one of the most brilliant scholars I ever had the opportunity to uh, sit down and listen to, Dr. Jacob uh, Carruthers, uh, you know, former leader, uh, one of the founders of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, uh, there, were, there were numerous revolts. Africans, and see, this is the thing that our people have to understand. People who knew what it was to be free, mm. there's a portion of them where that desire for freedom never dies. Interesting. We have never known what it's like to be truly free. And by that, I mean truly liberated and empowered and able to determine our own destiny. In the 400 years that we've been in the United States, except for some, you know, a few pockets of independence, uh, you know, briefly for periods of time, uh, the Africans in the dismal swamp had more freedom <laughs> mm -hmm. than, 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 than we have today. But the interesting thing is that, um, um, you know, this, uh, this, this revolution actually begins with the first Africans who were transported to the island of uh, Haiti or Haiti. Uh, they're, Historians don't agree on when the first Africans arrived. Uh, Carruthers says it was 1508. Some people say it was, it was before that because 
the 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 Europeans, the savages from Europe, brought diseases with them that were the, the, the bodies of these Europeans were literally weapons of mass destruction. Mm. And and uh, the 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 population of the of the indigenous people of Haiti was was wiped out. I mean, Eric Williams says uh, approximately three hundred thousand. Some people said earlier. Uh, within uh, hundred and fifty years, they could only count hundred and fifty people left that were of pure uh, indigenous uh, stock. But in 1522, actually on the plantation that was owned by Columbus's brother was the first, first major revolt. There was another revolt on, in 1537, one in 1548. So it, the point is that people who know what it was to be free, particularly when they are under intense, intense, harsh, brutal oppression, are going to fight for their freedom. We have concepts mm -hmm. based on our study of our ancestors. But, um, you know, that's just something, that's something for us to think about in terms of, in, ter in terms of, of where we are today. How, how these, these Africans were able to, you know, because, you know, Bookman was killed, Tucson was killed, many were killed. And, uh, Finally, under, uh, you know, Dessaline, Christobe, and others, they said, okay, look, we, we, we got to thoroughly crush these people. Mm -hmm. No mercy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no mercy whatsoever. And, and that's what they did. And, of course, the, in, the entire European world organized against them. But um, just uh, uh, I got an email from the warrior queen, uh, Sister Azili Danto, and a lot of scholars, you know, that are actually from Haiti, they they say that the that the revolution began on the night of August twenty first into the morning of August twenty second. So you know that's why you know August twenty first, August twenty second, uh, those are those are two significant days, you know, in our history. Two hundred and twenty eight years ago, seventeen. 91 was when it was launched and um, you know we are certainly here to say that you know the spirit lives on if not the actual you know model emulating the actual model yeah brother I was uh, <laughs> listening to you. you were talking about concepts of freedom but you know, I, you know harken back to a statement made by George Jackson, I think it was in the Soledad uh, letters that he wrote uh, where he talked about his father. Uh, there was some disdain in his writing over the fact that his father's nervous system had been destroyed. Hmm. I mean, you cannot even think properly, you know, when your nervous system has been destroyed. And here we find ourselves in a situation in 2019 where, you know, our nervous system really is in the hands of white supremacy. You know, it's like uh, uh, Baraka asked ask a series of questions, you know, you gotta hold your mouth a certain way, you gotta look a certain way. You know, you, um, the departed queen 
Sister Toni Morrison talked about or encouraged many of her writers, don't write as if you have the European peering uh, over your shoulders. Mm-hmm. So we're just talking about um, liberation and Every aspect of the word, psychologically, physically, materially, humanly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We would have to really uh, understand this from the perspective of a writing, you know, of of uh, some griot who could articulate what it was like actually pre-colonial uh, venue, uh, you know, prior to... Um, you know, the African being affected, infected, you know, by European cultural invasion, biological invasion, uh, military invasion, the whole kith and caboodle. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, it is interesting and an alien concept to us, um, you know, as articulated by many, most notably the great, Nina Simone from Tryon, North Carolina. I wish I knew how it feels to be free, mm-hmm. you know, given the anxiety that I personally experienced uh, sitting here. Um, you know, just interesting. But, um, you know, also um, we were talking about the heroic acts of the Africans, brother. You gave us a litany of revolts and uh, you know suffice it to say uh, there have always been those who uh, betrayed the African Revolution and if I was sitting in a classroom Monday morning I would ask my students to observe the print media or the electronic media and to give me examples of the Africans who were visible who were attempting to achieve their uh, uh, manumission, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, this is a holdover of, uh, from slavery, um, meritorious manumission. So, I mean, how was this achieved then and now? As you have said here on this show, brother, they control by way of the carrot or the stick. Mm. Yeah, we're talking about in ancient times, if you save the white life, if you saved the NFL or attempted to, or if you may invented something that enriched the white man, you know, or if you uh, betrayed a slave rebellion, well then you could achieve your uh, nominal freedom this way. <laughs> <laughs> the system of reward and punishment, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, of course, uh, as we sit here on, we are taping the show on August 23rd, and in 1831, one of our greatest revolutionaries, maybe greatest, Nat Turner's revolt started on August 21st, and it lasted from the 21st to the 23rd of 1831. 31, uh, I pulled out a copy of uh, Dr. John Henry Clark's uh, The Second Crucifixion of Nat Turner. Uh, it, he originally had a, um, 
The first edition was titled uh, William Styron's Nat Turner, Ten Black Writers Respond. Oh, um, my God. Uh, Dr. Clark pulled together a group of people after the uh, the uh, assassination, <laughs> the character assassination, which he's now calling, he's calling uh, Styron's book The Second Crucifixion of Nat Turner. And uh, it was necessary for our people to respond to that. And Dr. Clark pulled together a group of people, Lerone Bennett and others. And uh, Dr. Clark says something that's very interesting. He said, Nat Turner had an understanding of power in his day, superior to any understanding reflected by the black radicals and revolutionary pretenders of today. Mm. Uh, That was... uh, (laughs) That's a powerful statement because, you know, very few are willing to um, engage in those activities uh, like Nat Turner, for example, Gabriel Prosser and Bob Farabee uh, had organized revolts in Virginia, uh, you know, before before Nat uh, uh Prosser, right at the time Nat was born, and uh, Farabee when Nat was probably about 13 or whatever. Of course, we know Nat. Nat did something very interesting. He escaped from his uh, uh, enslaver's plantation and spent a year free. Uh, Dr. Vincent Harding and, and, and a number of others speculate that he spent that year living in uh, the Dismal Swamp which was a refuge, uh, actually uh, an independent um, village, more or less, that uh, uh, liberated Africans had set up uh, along the border of uh, eastern Virginia and North Carolina. And, and then he returned. And he returned from freedom to, quote, unquote, slavery because he thought, he knew that his mission was to liberate people who were still enslaved, and he felt the best way to do that would be to organize on plantations. Uh, Lerone Bennett said that Nat Turner was David Walker's word made flesh. We remember David Walker's appeal, right? Mm. One year after Walker's death and 130 years before Watts, Nat Turner and a band of black rebels cut a swath of blood through the sleepy little Virginia county of Southampton. For 48 hours, he and his men hacked and maimed white flesh. When at length the insurrection ended, 57 persons lay dead, and a gaping wound of slavery lay open for all to see. In this effort, the largest and bloodiest slave revolt in American history, Nat Turner made made slavery serious. After Nat's insurrection, it was no longer possible for men to pretend. There were men in the slave quarters. Mm. One, could, one could not always depend on their mask. At any moment, the mask could be turned into a hard face of blood and vengeance. So, you know, this, this was the blow that, that, uh, that Nat Turner struck against child slavery because it was something that Africans were supposed to be incapable, incapable of doing. And... Um, Bennett is saying, you know, that it was the, uh, you know, it was the, the, the largest and, you know, most successful, you know, insurrection, you know, during the period of chattel slavery. But, but you know, even, even before Nat Turner, 
I just want to digress for a minute because, you know, a group of Africans were brought uh, to the uh, P.D. River area of South Carolina in 1526 um, by uh, some Spaniards uh, from from Haiti, actually. And um, there were about 500 Span- Spaniards and 100 Africans. Uh, they were met by indigenous people who were on point. They... They didn't have, uh, you know, this um, this flaw that we had of welcoming strangers to our land and the flaw that most indigenous people had. You know, the we remember the uh, Arawaks of the Bahamas walking out to greet Columbus, you know, when they, they should have been removing his head so that it could float back across the Atlantic as a warning. Don't come over here, right? <laughs> um, and just like our... People on the North Sentinel Island right now, you know, if you go there, you're going to be met with arrows. They'll, they'll shoot arrows at airplanes and helicopters. But uh, these particular indigenous people were very hostile towards the, uh, towards the uh, Spaniards. And once the Africans, uh, you know, realized, got a feeling for the terrain, they revolted. And uh, killed, uh, by some estimates, about 200 or over 200 of the, of the Spaniards. The Spaniards had to pack up and, and, and those who survived returned back to uh, Haiti. And those uh, 100 Africans went on to, uh, to live free, at least for a period of time, among the uh, indigenous people in this land. So, you know, but so, so in my mind, Nat Turner is like... Is like those Africans that came in in 1526, right? People that were willing to fight for their freedom. And, of course, you know, there were over documented over 250 revolts against chattel slavery. But we honor the great, great Nat Turner um, because, uh, you know, his revolt was still taking place or at least the, the, the last stages of it on, on this particular day uh, in 1831. You know, and uh, <clears throat> while I was in Washington, D.C., I did observe the fact that uh, the former mayor of Gary, Indiana, our brother Hatchet, who's in his 80s now, mm. he graciously returned the remains of Nat Turner to his relatives who are still living in Southampton County, right? Uh, Cortland in those days, um, Jerusalem. But uh, brother, I know you got some comments on the bastardization of the Nat Turner legacy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a talking point at least. Well, yeah, and speaking of his descendants, I was able to meet one of Nat Turner's descendants when I was in Southampton. Um, and uh, brother, I did not know you had. Yeah, this was uh, 2014, and um, he actually showed me where they caught Nat Turner, where he was hiding out, uh, because there was a Negro that that um, told of his location. And this is how they were able to finally catch him and arrest him, and um, take him in. And when he was in prison. 
this is when the first confessions of Nat Turner was written uh, when they talked to him. And uh, what William Styron did under the influence of what we talked about last week, Jimmy Baldwin, James Baldwin, he actually created a book called The Confessions of Nat Turner. So when people go and they, and they look for the confessions of Nat Turner, some of them thinking that they're actually getting the original quote-unquote confession of Nat Turner when he was arrested, and then they end up getting this uh, homosexual fairy tale of Nat Turner being in love with men and white women. <laughs> so, that, I mean, the devastating effect of that, you know, speaks for itself. You talk about the great volume of work that Nat Turner was responsible for. And also, um, the effect that his work had on the minds and the hearts of white people, the fear that it struck in them to eventually know that they had to put an end to slavery. Another thing we have to remember is that Nat Turner could read, he could write, but he, he knew that he didn't have to read a thousand books before he started the revolution. <laughs> and I think sometimes today we get caught in the mode of, you know, we want to read, and which is you should educate yourself. But Nat Turner was about that action. And if it wasn't for the action that he portrayed, he and his fellow comrades portrayed, we don't know how much longer our ancestors would have continued to be enslaved in America. Because hmm. I could tell you one thing, America had the strongest hold on Africans out of any country around the world when it came to African enslavement. Hmm. So for Nat Turner to strike that blow, it put a chink in the armor of how controlled they thought that they had our ancestors here, along with many other rebellions, but um, that was the most devastating one. Yes, sir. You know, so much so that there's a pseudo-scientific term called drapetomania, you know, and it really, um, it basically tries to say that something is mentally off balance in the psyche of an African who would dare to attempt such a revolt. You know, the, the white mentality, the white psyche is really strange. You know, you go back to 1963, you know, whites uh, didn't feel that uh, blacks were being treated uh, not even nominally. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the happy-go-lucky Negro is an image that has always persisted in their minds, you know, even during the time of the uh, jure and de facto segregation, you know, that the slaves were perpetually happy. Mm you know, and had no reason to revolt right. uh, per se. And, 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 when they, and when we did in many instances in places like, uh, you know, Birmingham, you know, it was attributed to the fact that, you know, the dogs had been sicked on Africans because Africans had ventured into the grocery store and stole stolen T-bone steaks, and the dogs were responding to the steaks that blacks held underneath their garment. Hmm. You know, it, it, it's just an amazing thing, this uh, disavowal for lack of, of, of racism, and brother. And, and you, you hit it right on 
you hit it right on point, Gullah Jack, because the words that they choose to use to even define someone fighting for their freedom to make that person look evil. To say, you know, and I just use the word, uh, rebellion. The rebellion defines a person who is fighting for their freedom as a rebel, which is, you know, has the connotation that this person was doing something wrong or doing something they should not have been doing. When somebody says that, okay, this person rebelled against you or they rebelled against the system, that person is looked at as the person that is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing, which it should be human nature for for you to resist oppression. Yes, sir. That, that's normal. And, you know, I'm reminded of Brother Wilson, the great Amos Wilson, who refers to our state as pathological normalcy. Mm. And the greatest threat to African people, this is Wilson, I'm quoting, are law-abiding Negroes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, moving along here, you know, I, I just find it interesting, uh, brother. You were talking about language, oftentimes racism, uh, cloaked in normally race-neutral language. End of quotes. This is what I would share with any sixth grader if I were a classroom on Monday. States' rights. In other words, we have control of our negras. We don't need the federal government to intervene. You know, of course, uh, there was a time when we thought that the federal government could lend some assistance. Uh, local control, hmm. very similar to states' rights. Okay, code wrote word, euphemisms, law and order, term that Richard Nixon used. We're going to bring about law and order, you know, implying there's some innate criminality in the African enclaves colonies of the United States. Listen to this, personal responsibility. Now they captured us, okay, to do the doggone dirty work, you know, accused us of being personally irresponsible. You know, I, I was reading a while back um, the president of the white confederacy, a gentleman named Jefferson Davis, as punishment, his father sent him to the fields of Mississippi and he lasted only a few minutes. Mm. You know, this was uh, imposed on him by his father's punishment near Biloxi, Gulfport, wherever he was from. Uh, another term for every sixth grader, inner city. You know, I think every child can pick up on that. Urban crime, coded words. Mao Zedong talked about properly defining a thing. Urban crime, welfare dependent. Okay, here's the one I hear most often charge on the taxpayers, mm. you know, the perception of hardworking whites, giving their money to undeserved blacks, and of course, one made um, prominent by the uh, CCF, Clinton crime family, I got that from McCaru, <laughs> super predators, and of course, felons. You think you're having a conversation with a white man, you're having two different conversations. When you hear public, transient, social services, you know, white minds register race and blacks in particular. 
Just like when they hear thug and terrorist. Mm. And Bob Marker, you got more on Black August. Yeah. Um, this past uh, August 17th was the Earth Day, a birthday of the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. August 17th, 1887 in, um, on the island of Jamaica. Uh, you know, this great warrior uh, came onto the planet and Garvey, Garvey represented, in my mind, the, the greatest potential that the African world has seen for liberation and empowerment in the past 500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he articulated a vision of peoplehood, nationhood, self-determination, power, that the masses of our people in the first quarter of the, of the 20th century just latched onto. It just resonated in their hearts because you got to understand that, that, that many of these people that, were living, you know, some of them were had, had actually had been born, you know, during chattel slavery. Many of the others, you know, had had grown up and 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 witnessed the uh, the overthrow of Reconstruction. They had seen all of the lynchings. Uh, they had seen um, the white racial violence that wiped out entire African towns and 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 communities. And Garvey came along and articulated a message that just that just resonated in the hearts. And one of the things that, you know, Dr. Amos Wilson has a book called African-Centered Consciousness versus the New World Order, Garveyism in the Age of Globalism. And one of the things that, that, uh, that he has here, I think, that's very, very valuable, just to give people an idea, Garvey... Uh, formed an organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And so organization organization is, is the first step to liberation. Let's be crystal clear about that. There, there's, no, there's no liberation without, without some kind of organization. You know, Narma had to organize his forces in ancient Kemet in order to unify Kemet and you know, set in motion the African origin of civilization. But it's just amazing, you know, when 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 we look at the fact that by some estimates six to seven million people uh, you know, joined this organization and paid dues. And if you look at a map of the United States, there was a chapter of the uh, UNIA and almost Every state right here in North Carolina, there were 47 chapters, 24 in South Carolina. Louisiana led the way. Queen Mother Moore was a member in Louisiana. They had 74, 32 in Florida, 44 in Mississippi, 16 in California, 16 in New York, 45 in Pennsylvania, uh, all throughout the Caribbean, 52 branches. These were branches of the UNIA that I'm talking about. 
52 on the island of Cuba, 11 in Jamaica, 30 in Trinidad and uh, Tobago, um, 6 you know, in Colombia, 7 in Guyana, 23 in Costa Rica, 47 in Panama. And uh, then, you know, on to, on to the African continent where, you know, there were chapters in, in, in a number of uh, countries, uh, including Ghana, then known as the Gold Coast, Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Azania, South Africa, Namibia. Um, so, so this, you know, what was it? What was it? What was it, brother? What was it? And what was it, you know, given the proliferation of these organizations here in Babylon and they were able to survive given the racist militant potential? Right. Right. Uh, you know, Am Dr. Amos Wilson, you know, certainly one of our... Um, most brilliant psychologist, if not the most brilliant, certainly in terms of, you know, the field he was he was dealing with, the psychodynamics of black self-annihilation, the most brilliant. He says one of the things in Marcus God in, in, in the Marcus Garvey, Garvey's legacy was that of his perception of reality. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a lot of us, you know, have our our, our reality is totally distorted. You know, as uh, Wade Noble says, power is the ability to define reality. And, uh, and for a lot of us, our realities have been, um, you know, defined by others. And he said, it is necessary for people, if they are coping with reality, if they are trying to advance themselves to know that reality, they need sensors and people who can tell what reality is, who can inform them as to the nature of the reality such that that the decisions the group must make in determining how to how it will behave, how it will shape its destiny, can be based on the real, not the unreal. You know, one of the one of the uh, ten virtues of the educational system in ancient Kemet, the, uh, a student had to be able to distinguish between the real and the unreal. Mm -hmm. George G. M. James lists this in uh, Stolen Legacy. And uh, Wilson says, in Marcus Garvey, I see this great censor, this great seal who informed us of the real world in which we existed, not of a dream world, not of a world of wishful, wishful thinking, not of one distorted by hope, but a world that was seen as it is, a world that was sometimes brutally projected to us as a people that, that, that we could use the knowledge to advance our interests. And then... And this is the, the, the brilliant thing that, that you know, even uh, Du Bois, who is considered to be, you know, an arch, you know, antagonist of, God, of Garvey, in his first essay that, that he wrote about Garvey in 1920 called Back to Africa, he said Garvey is a brilliant mass organizer and with, with remarkable ability to organize people, you know, through the way he articulates his message. Okay? So, uh, the other thing, that one other thing that, that Wilson says, you know, he, he says, we see in Marcus Garvey the ultimate psychotherapist, mm. one who is revealing and one who reveals the unconscious controls and controls that were implanted outside of our conscience by our enemies and our oppressors. 
So Garvey is doing, you know, what we've often said about, you know, our task being more difficult than than Norma's task in terms of Norma had to focus on molding all of these different groups of people into one people. His focus was on construction. Garvey is a person who had to deconstruct all of the controls, you know, all of the distorted reality. All, all, all of the all of the things that were influencing the, the, the way we saw the world and the way we saw ourselves. So he was in the process of deconstructing and then reconstructing. He wasn't using the word African Senate, but he was you know, reconstructing an African consciousness. OK, and a lot of our people at that time were not so contaminated by all of the things that are that are fluttering through the minds of our people today that they could they, they could see that they could they could see what he was saying. And, and then when he made things reality, when, when he made say, OK, here's the idea. Now, here is the reality. The Negro Factories Corporation. I'm going to put you to work in this factory building products. Here's the Black Star Line, and it's going to sail from America to the Caribbean, then eventually to Africa. People could see these things. So that's why they were willing to scrape up pennies, you know, to buy stock in the Black Star Line. So, you know, this, to me, this is what, um, this is what made it. But I think one of, one of the other things that I think was key to, key to Garvey's success was the fact that he was dealing with uh, a, a community, groups of people whose families were intact. Mm. As opposed to what we're dealing with today. I think that's one that's one of the one of the one of the uh, keys to, to Garvey's success was the fact that we were in the process of building strong black families. OK, uh, you know, coming out of uh, out of chattel slavery. And 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 be, be, because the see chattel slavery never destroyed our sense of familyhood, despite everything that took place, it never destroyed that. So the fact that 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 Garvey, that 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 you had families that were willing to sacrifice pennies, okay, you know maybe we can't have this, but let's buy some stock in the Black Star Line. So so, you know he created this vision. That's that's why Dr. Clark called this book. Marcus Garvey and the vision of Africa. He gave people a vision and then he said, you know, here's how to manifest it. Here's how, here's how to make it real. So, you know, August 17th, uh, certainly one of the most significant days of the, uh, of the black August. And um, I think we have one more program before August ends. There's some other events that we have not yet gotten to like, uh, you know, Gabriel Prosser's, um, Rebellion and some other things that uh, we may be able to talk about, but um, you know that's uh, you know th- that that's where we are recognizing the significance of that of that history, uh, particularly of, of all all every, all of the people, everything that we mentioned today are people who I would call liberators. Come on, and also to, <clears throat> also today, um, we have to say Happy Earth Day to um, the great Russell Maroon Shows. Come mm-hmm. on. Uh, who was born on August 23rd. Exactly. Who uh, went into a police station. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the Black Liberation Army. Yeah, you're talking about uh, a modern-day Nat Turner. Right. 
Tell us more about Maroon Shows, brother. Well, the brother, the brother, you know, stood up to police brutality. And he murdered a police officer. He went inside the police station, murdered a police officer, and is, was, was sentenced to multiple life sentences. Yeah, still, I would, still in prison today. Exactly. You know, and and I, it was a, it it was actually I, I would call it more of an act of war. Right. <laughs> because uh, what had happened was a 16 year old uh, uh, black kid had been gunned down in the streets of Philadelphia, one of many, and these guys said. That's it. Enough is enough. That's it, man. You know, <laughs> that's that's just, that's it. I mean, we got we got to do something. And uh, the the Maroon Schultz Black Liberation Army Rebellion also took place in August. Yeah. Also took place in August. So not only was it his birthday, but the rebellion. Uh, okay. Okay. The rebellion also, yeah, also took place in August. I so, say. you know, the modern-day Nat Turner, Russell Maroon shows, one of our greatest warriors uh, that we that we produced, uh, you know, in the 20th century, in my, in my opinion. I say, we, we're running out of time. Um, again, we're going to continue this discussion on the next podcast, uh, which will fall on. It's the 23rd. It will be on August the 30th. Uh, we'll, we'll go into a lot more. That happened in August. Uh, but this has been the African Liberation Media Podcast. You can find us on our website, AfricanLiberationMedia.com. And it's also important to note that in August of 2017, August 21st, African Liberation Media was founded. Uh, this will be our <laughs> 93rd episode of Delivering media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people you can listen to us on Spotify on our Apple Podcasts you can also find us on social media at African Liberation Media BB for ODA BB for ODA always a joy and pleasure power or the lack of power I want to repeat this power or the lack of power if your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world. <laughs>